I'm J-Mac. And I'm Jess. And this is the Loosely Coupled Podcast. Cool. Okay. So this is uh, what? This is episode three? It's the fourth episode. Episode number three. <laughs> I thought we started at zero. It's Yeah, it's index three, position four. <laughs> Well, I guess I think of them as the order of the base code practices, or nested code is the third practice. So that's kind of um, where my head goes. But yes, I guess technically this is to humans, to, to mere humans, this is the fourth episode. Yeah. All right. Cool. So yes, um, anything new with you? Super new? No, just plugging away with uh, my personal projects, uh, hoping to be able to release something sometime soon, but... Yeah, for the time being, it's uh, just plugging away. How about you? I've had a very busy two days, actually. I'm, I'm I'm quite tired, so I hope that doesn't come across in the audio necessarily. But yeah, I think, um, gosh, well, first of all, I had the, the weekly workshops. I do weekly Wednesday workshops, dub, dub, dub. And so that was this morning. So there was some preparation for that. But I'm also trying to beef out the subscriptions for Shift. So I have Everything in Shift has some kind of like Shift name, and it's normally meant to be, you know, a little bit goofy. So these are called Shifty plans. Yeah. Um, and that's basically the subscription. And right now, it's 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 not like substantial enough in my mind. It'd be like if you were watching Netflix and they had like ten movies. Like, yeah. If you really liked those ten movies, you'd subscribe for a few months, and then you'd be like, okay, you need to get more movies. Yeah. That's kind of where this is. It has. The core features and it's priced appropriately so it's basically a wash as far as the cost goes if you were gonna do these other shifts in fact it's it's better but anyways the point is that i built this dependency updater uh which was kind of cool but it, some of the nuances of it ended up taking a little longer than i thought so i had like the mvp done in probably just a few hours but once i kind of got into the the nuances of like scale and how people have very different dependencies or private dependencies on on private packages or private you know Bitbucket repos where Bitbucket's like really crappy about deploy tokens. It just it took a while to kind of get that ironed out. It's still not fully done, but the good news is that people were using it. Sounds interesting though. I uh, I hope to be able to use it. Yeah. Well, let's jump into nested code. All right. Nested code. So. For me, this was kind of, I think I've said in previous episodes, this was the one that I feel like I found a lot later in my coding life um, and was one where it didn't seem as obvious on the surface. Things like dead code, when you hear about it, you're like, you know, duh. But with things like nested code, you write, you end up writing these long procedural blocks and you're like, how can I make this better? I know it's... It feels dirty, but I don't know how to make it better. Yeah. So this was one of these things that I remember learning at some point, and it was a bit of a game changer. And I think it made me a much better developer. So this is definitely where I start to reel people in with with these really actionable practices. Like the formatting is pretty straightforward, like you said. Um, you know, dead code's pretty straightforward. You just remove it. There's not a whole lot of like nuance in the practice right yeah uh, but nested code is actually where you start to see different patterns for approaching code, different types of nested code so i did have a lot of fun with it you know from that regard and and also again the, the practices you know they progress in a way yeah and the other thing too i guess to the point that you're saying is like logic is the basis of all code 
right? I mean, that's what programming is. It's it's logic, and and as such, these structures, you know, are very common. Like these control structures for if blocks or loops, are just the building blocks of any code, and and as such, you know, the code they make up a lot of the code. So yeah. this is this is again where you can get those actual practices like the most bang for your buck is like in this practice potentially because it's just going to address a lot of different types of code. Yeah, I think it just yeah, it makes things far more readable, which is obviously, you know, the, one of the overarching uh themes. All about readability. Yeah, just makes code that's just less overwhelming when you come back to it or if you're looking at someone else's code. So, yeah, let's talk about it. The big thing for me in nested code and, and kind of throughout the book, but I think I mention it first here with this practice is I just don't believe in like hard rules. Like a lot of people will say things like, like before I heard, you know, avoid else, don't use else. And, and this was a, a, a challenging practice and I, I definitely understand what their intention was, but it was just kind of like a hard rules. And it's, it's the same, you know, as we get into big blocks, like, oh, methods shouldn't be longer than 15 lines you know, you should have indentation of four spaces. Like, some of these things I understand, and although maybe I do implement them, I just, I don't do it because of the sheer, like, number or the sheer strictness of the rule, per se. I just kind of, I think those are difficult. And as, as programmers, obviously, we do try to be very binary. It's like, oh, you should be doing this. This this is it. And over time, it, some of those kind of erode, and they, they change into maybe other hard rules. And so it's this constant game of trying to keep up if you end up trying to follow all these rules and it'll drive you nuts. And so I just, I think I gave them up several years ago. I mean, definitely early on in my career, I, I was all about them. I, I preached them. I, I pushed them on to other people. But that's not what I wanted to do with base code. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's good to be aware of that these things are here and for the have them inform you and maybe guide you. But like you say, it's not, you know, if you, if you break that rule, it's not the end of the world. It doesn't mean you've written bad code. It's it's just about keeping it in mind as something that, yeah, to strive towards but not always achieve. Cool. Kind of with that disclaimer out of the way, let, let's get into the actual kind of sub practices to kind of combat nested code. And again, a lot of these deal with, you know, if else blocks because, you know, that's going to form a lot of the the basis and the and the business logic that you're that you're programming in your you know your applications. Yeah. So the first one I think is kind of the the softball, and it goes back actually to dead code. Is just I can't tell you how many times I've seen in my own code, admittedly, but but also other code uh, where there's just like an empty if or an empty else, and I'm not sure if this happened over time or maybe it was a new developer that thought the syntax the pairing of an if and an else was required. You know, I'm not sure exactly the origin of it, but I've I've seen it more than once on different teams in different languages. And so this is a thing that happens as silly as it might sound. So the times I've seen it the most and admittedly probably done it is if the logic to me is framed really easily as an if and then when I want to go and I only actually want to handle the else case but flipping the logic of the condition, if the condition has been made way too complex and you've got a bunch of ands and ors, you've got to go like swap things around and work out what you're negating. And yeah, it ends up getting, yeah, sometimes a bit tricky and you're like, oh, it's too hard. I'll just have an empty if block and then put everything in the else. But That's totally fair. And I think that's important 
you know, again, kind of going back to that whole divide and conquer and, and how, how sometimes we hack away at something and, and maybe we forget to go back and kind of clean it up, right? To, to refactor it to where it's a little bit better now that it's working. But oftentimes you can just, if you extract a method for your condition, then you can then negate it quite easily and yeah, and then you achieve really good readability. So yeah, let's keep that on the shelf just for a second, just to finish kind of the empty aspect of it. So yeah, there, there's a couple different ways to your point to, to refactor this, but the point here is that when you're done, if you notice that yes, maybe it was easier to code, then there is still an issue there that you should solve. And the issue is you have complexity, you know, in your condition. It shouldn't just be, ah, uh, well, the that if's too hard, so I'm going to leave it an empty block and I'll just use the else. <laughs> like, that's, that's giving up in a way. So, like, you know, definitely go back and, and clean that up. Yeah, I think it's it's a sign that, yeah, that maybe there's an opportunity to simplify. For sure. So one of the easy simplifications for an if-else block is anytime I see raw Boolean values being returned or assigned or whatever they are, if the result of the if or the else is simply to return true or to return false, then I know that I can do something with that condition directly because the condition evaluates to true or false. Yeah. So whether it's an assignment or you're passing a true or false type of argument to another method or whatever it is, there's a good possibility to just take that condition and use it directly and you can avoid the whole if-else structure. Yeah, it's a hard one to explain, um, you know, on audio, but you can you can often turn five lines of code into one line of code without really losing any readability. You'll often gain more readability just because it's less overwhelming, as long as the condition is simple enough. So yeah, I'm a big fan of that one. Exactly. And then we'll definitely talk about ways to kind of clean up if the condition is complex. But the long story short is you, you're basically reading the condition no matter what. So why read also five lines of code? When the focus is that condition, we can kind of draw it out directly. Yeah. Because you're going to have to kind of parse that as a reader anyways. Yeah. And while there are some tricks we could do to, to make that more readable, the point is, is that you're reading it nonetheless in either scenario. So why make re me read four additional lines when I could just keep the focus on this one conditional and use kind of the evaluation of that directly? Yeah. And just to sort of, to clarify, is switching from, say, five lines to one line is not something that I would say is something you should always be striving to do because there are people out there that will be striving for the, you know, the best one-liner they can possibly find. They'll nest ternaries three levels deep and end up with one line, but it's completely illegible. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe to that person, it, it seems readable, but it's a long time ago, there was a site, and maybe it's still around, but it was called Code Golf. Yeah. And what they would do is they would present some kind of simple problem set, you know, um, count how many vowels are in a string, right? And the goal was whatever language you wanted to try to write it in the least amount of code possible. Yeah. And like, and so that was golf. Kind of the whole point of golf is you want the lowest score. So lowest pi, yeah. Yeah, so code golf is basically the, the lowest number of characters, right, in this case, to, to accomplish the task. And so it was pretty interesting because not only did it show what languages were kind of more powerful with what types of maybe problems, right, and what solutions they were, they were good at, 
but also just the the ridiculousness of of kind of line noise syntax that you could end up writing. Yeah, I think I think it's it's one of those things that's fun to to play with, but it's not necessarily something you always want to put in your production code. Exactly. It's a fun exercise to to push the boundaries of the language, to push the boundaries of the syntax, but this is not code you should be writing for other humans. This is code that you're writing on a dare to like show a friend or the world how re- how ridiculous it is. Yeah. <laughs> I like that on a dare. <laughs> yeah, going back to it, I mean, those at the end of the day, you can you can argue as much as you want. They're not readable. You you're never going to convince me that a line noise code golf you know, if ternary, multiple things, all just because it fits in one line or all because it's like 30 packed characters with no white space, you know, going back to formatting, it's just, it's going to be completely visually dishonest. It's never going to be readable. Yep. So. So yes, back to reality. Back to reality. Yep. Back to not code golf. Yeah. So, you know, ternaries, I would say, you know, we're talking about rules and not having rules, but I feel like nested ternaries is probably one to keep in your mind as something to not do. <laughs> yeah, nested ternaries are much like nested. I mean, at the end of the day, they're still nested if statements. And, and the whole point of nested code is, is to kind of try to avoid this. And, and so for me, what I like to see is I want to, whenever I look at a method, I want to see the primary action of that method kind of at the top level, like the top indentation level, so to speak. So if there is a, you know, set class, just a simple set object, right? And I'm, I'm adding items to that set. And I go look at the add method. I want to see the action or the storing of that item at the top indentation level of that block. I don't want to see it nested, you know, seven if statements down. I don't want to see it, you know, buried within a ternary. I want to see when, okay, if I'm trying to come in here and understand this code, what add does, it's nice to see, okay, here is what add does. Now, if there's some things that need to happen before that to prevent against some exceptional state or exceptional behavior, then by all means, do that. But at some point, you should reach part of that block where the primary action is just clear, it's readable, it's all top level. It's like, here is what this does. Maybe there were some things you had to wade through before you got here, but now you're here and, you know, enjoy. (laughs) Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the one of the best ways to do that and again it's not a rule but a guideline is is return early or, you know, guard statements. Yeah, guard clauses are a big they were a big game changer for me when at least I was able to kind of apply the name to them. And the whole return early or fail early paradigm is probably more common in other languages. So I I primarily write PHP, but I've written you know, a half dozen other languages, um, you know, Ruby, Objective-C, Swift, obviously JavaScript. And so each one of these are different. And so you start to see something. So for example, um, Swift actually has inside of its language, its syntax, guard. So instead of actually saying if, whatever, and then returning, there's actually a, a syntax to say guard and then provide it some kind of condition. And it kind of just works the way a guard clause does. So they kind of make the, the guard clause a, a first-class citizen within their syntax. That's nice. I know uh, I do a lot of coding in Laravel, and they've got these, you know, throw if and throw unless and abort if and abort unless. 
that let you write really, really readable code because you can basically say, abort if this condition, and it's a one-liner, it's super readable. Um, one that I wish we could do kind of in PHP is return if, mm. but you can't return from inside that, so you're always going to need to have an if statement around the around a return. Yeah, exactly. Some of that stuff has to be kind of built into the language, so I, I know... I don't know which one you were referencing, but I know Ruby has like the whole return if. Yeah. I just wish we had that in PHP. Sure. Yeah, there's all sorts of things, again, that you can pull from other languages, but kind of the essence of a guard clause, it is an if statement, but it basically has a return block. So the point here is that if I was going to go into adding something to the set class again, and let's say I pass in a null item, and I want to guard against adding null items to this set class. Like that would be an example of the guard clause. Like so instead of saying, okay, if this item's not null, then add it where I'm burying that primary action, I can kind of invert all of that and turn it into a guard clause and say, okay, look, if this thing is item, if the item is null, then just go ahead and return. Like we're not going to add this thing. I mean, I think it's it's a good idea to kind of think about why it's called a guard clause. And you can almost imagine it like a bodyguard that stands at the front of your your method and is checking people at the doors, checking all your conditions and saying, hey, no, you're not allowed to go down to the primary action, so we're guarding against you, we're returning you. Yeah. We're returning null, we're returning whatever our exceptional thing is, throwing an exception, whatever it might be, so that when you get down to the primary action, which can then be at the top level because, you know, none of the other conditions are going to get that far, Um yeah, it's kind of like the, the VIP zone for the good code that's been guarded by the bodyguard, you know? <laughs> and I, I think I think the pushback to something like a guard clause is because you're basically setting up multiple return paths now. Yeah. And and that's that's normally the pushback I get when I'm kind of sharing these base code practices, at, you know, at conferences and workshops and so forth. I'll definitely, there'll be at least one in the audience that's kind of like, eh, you know, we don't we don't use multiple return paths like it, you know it adds you know cyclomatic complexity and and all these other things they'll kind of throw at you and i definitely understand their point but again it goes back to readability for me i don't want to wade through several nested things just to satisfy this hard rule of only having one return statement when having that guard clause it's just it's very easy for me as a reader to know if I'm coming in with add, I'm already going to have context. I'm going to know what the value of item is. And if it satisfies one of these conditions, I don't even need to read anymore. I just I just bail on out of there. Yeah. And so I've, I think, again, from a readability perspective, it's helpful. A, from not having all that nested kind of visually complex code. But B, from a readability standpoint, when I do go back and I'm potentially debugging this method or I'm understanding the code, these guard clauses almost serve in a way as kind of documentation to say, okay, we don't accept null, we don't accept items that are already in the set, like duplicate items or whatever. I can really kind of read through those and in a human way interpret what the rules are for adding something to this set class. One thing I think is important, and I think we'll probably touch on it later, but with the guard clauses, a lot of people might be, I think, tempted to just return false as they're kind of, if, you know, if something's guarded, it's always return false. Um, and I think it's kind of a, yeah, it's like an old school kind of approach where, you know, you didn't have things like exceptions or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, in those cases, and like I said, we'll probably touch on it more um, in another episode. But, yeah, if, if you've got a method that's, you know, you're expecting to return a string, 
then return an empty string as in, in your guard clause. Yeah, that's definitely in the practice of reasonable returns. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is later on. Um, but yeah, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Like, you want to be mindful about about kind of what you're returning. So in some of these examples, you know, we're pretty much just returning nothing, right? Returning void, if you will. But in some other cases, if it's not some form of exceptional thing that's happening, then then yeah, return something that's reasonable so your code can play on. Like, I actually don't use exceptions a whole lot. I really try to only use them for exceptional states. Um, so I know that I know that seems obvious, but um, just to kind of expand on that a little bit more, like if I'm throwing an exception, I'm my kind of mindset is that I'm willing for the code or the application to to truly fail. Okay. Like this is something that I did not forecast for, and I need to kind of raise this or throw this exception. And potentially allowed to be handled higher up, but at that point, from from like a, a programming standpoint, I am willing as the author of that code for it to basically crash the application. Like, I treat them that serious, I guess, for me. And as such, I, I don't end up using them a whole lot. I, I much rather try to find something that can be returned or some kind of checking for these certain states so that I'm, I'm not really raising these exceptions very yeah, like one of the reasons, I guess, to not return false, to not throw exceptions is you don't want to have to call a method and then outside of the method, then start, you know, checking against what was returned to work out, work out the state of it. So, yeah. I mean, I guess the other thing, bringing it back to nested code, is that it might make your code appear a little bit cleaner, maybe, to, to throw an exception. It's maybe a little easier because it's a built-in language construct. But it's one of those things where you've really just kind of traded the density of if statements for try catches, yeah. you know, somewhere else in the code. In fact, sometimes you've even duplicated the amount of code because you still have the if to throw the original exception. And then now you have a try catch at a higher place to kind of handle that. So you've kind of just traded at best one for one ifs and else's for tries and catches. Uh, or worst case, you've duplicated the code because now you have the original if and else and then the throwing of an exception, and now a new try-catch block on the other end. So it's just, for those reasons, again, I, I, I tend not to use them, or at least use them sparingly, and I fully admit I, I might be uh, an exception <laughs> to, to throwing exceptions or using exceptions. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I think for me, the problem with, like, say, like a return false is you can't provide any information as to why it's failed. And when I say return false, I'm saying like return false is that's your, something's gone wrong, so return false. Mm -hmm. You can't provide any any context along with that as to why it went false. So then you might be tempted to wrap it in like an array where you've got, you know, success equals false on like a message or something like that. Um, it really depends, yeah, what you need to actually be able to pass back to a user if they need some sort of to know why something went wrong. But yeah, there's other ways of handling these things anyway, so. For sure. I think that's probably a hard, a hard one to address, you know, over a podcast, but I think, I think you're right. I mean, I think there are ways to go about that, you know, differently. There, there's probably some kind of stateful object. That... Yeah, agreed. So let, let's bring it back to, uh, to nested code. So what are, what are some of the other forms we have here? So you've got switch statements are a big one. Yeah. This for me is is kind of the going back to a little bit to dead code because for switch it's just such a heavy 
code block because you have the switch, you have the cases, you have the breaks. There's there's so much required syntax of a switch that unless I just have multiple values that I need to check, I find actually that the if statement for for only three or four you know values to check, I just find the if to be a little more readable, a little more visually honest about what's going on, maybe. Yeah, I think if your if your switch is returning, so you're returning out of whatever methods it's inside, then yeah, I'd probably switch it to to if statements because then you've got that kind of um, you know you can see where it's ending and it's at a higher level, like a higher indentation level, I should say. Yeah. If your your switch statement is setting some variable or doing something else that you then want to you know continue on after the switch statement, then in those cases, you know. I'd be looking more at things like polymorphism, which is, you know, a, a bit more complicated sometimes. But sure. yeah, generally I like to avoid switch. Yeah. So the point is you're abstracting um, those assignments to something else to kind of just keep that that higher uh, level of code a little more readable. Yeah. But maybe at a lower level, you're still doing the switch or you're still doing some kind of action. Yeah. Yeah. It just helps you avoid these like really long procedural blocks of code that you know, read more like a script that, you know. Sure. Yeah, you might you might write in bash or something. <laughs> yeah. The, the main thing there is is probably just to be um consistent. So, if you use ifs instead of switches for some things and and not others, then, you know, again to a reader it, it can kind of that toggling back and forth can be a bit jarring um and just requires a little bit of mental overhead. So, it's all about the reader. Just kind of make it make it a little more approachable for them. So it's again dealer's choice, but a lot of the times I'll I'll end up turning something or just keeping something to an if until I reach somewhat of a critical mass. But if there's any kind of logic inside of case statement or multiple lines of code, like I really again, you just start to toe that line of visual dishonesty and I I convert it back to the if. Yeah, I I definitely think yeah, a switch shouldn't have anything else nested inside it. I think that's just yeah, gives me anxiety thinking about it. Oh yeah. So some other forms of nested code are loops. Yeah. This is something I kind of punt in base code, uh, just because there's there's so many different ways to approach this in um, all sorts of different languages. Uh, but you know, loops can also be forms of nested code. They can they can make kind of long blocks of code, you know, within within your application. So it's something that. Uh, there's probably some things you can do to, to tweak those, but again, I, I kind of defer that to books that are a little more focused on that specific subject. Uh, and there's there's plenty of those things out there. And again, this is going to depend on your language. So, you know, if you're using, you know, Java, you, you have kind of first class, uh, especially I think starting in Java 8, you have like first class, um, you know, map filter and reduce type things. Um, you know, JavaScript has had these out for, you know, ever pretty much. PHP has these built into, uh, they're more functional, like they have a lot of array functions. So, yeah. you know, they're not necessarily object-like, but again, there's some libraries and stuff even for that. So definitely check out your language to see, is some kind of map filter reduce, is some kind of collection pipeline type of code going to help and improve readability? Again, that difficult because loop code, even when converted to like a map filter reduce, definitely can be readable to some, but to others can be very dense code, very visually dishonest. If you're not familiar with that, it's not going to be readable to you. So that's something you and your team should kind of consider. 
Yeah. I mean, we can't always write code that someone that doesn't understand the language is going to read. Like, we can't write pseudocode style code for everything. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's something I, I do want to take a second to emphasize. Again, these hard rules kind of go both ways. I don't want to have hard rules and say, like, this is the way you have to write code. But at the same time, I don't believe in coding for the lowest possible programmer. And so this kind of is like mathematical, you know, lowest common denominator type thing. Yeah. So I don't want to write code that has to be written at a level where the most junior uh, programmer on the team, like, must understand it. Because... In a way, when you do that, you've deprived yourself of the opportunity to learn and have a discussion with your coworkers and, and kind of elevate everyone's skill set, right? Not only your own skill set for being able to, hey, do I know this well enough to be able to explain it? And, and therefore, have I mastered it? But also, are they able to kind of, again, level up their skill by understanding some new features of maybe the language or some new ways to write code within that application? Uh, I, I, I totally agree with that. I think that, you know, Using the features of the language is, yeah, something you should definitely take advantage of. If that's features there, um, there's no reason not to take advantage of it. And if someone doesn't understand it because they don't understand the feature of the language, then that's more something they need to learn rather than, um, you know, a problem with your code. Absolutely. Anything else you got? Yeah. The uh, the only thing I wanted to close with is, and this is something that, you know, you just, you can't appreciate without looking at it. But if you are able to find some examples of like switching from code that goes in like, you know, these big switch statements, big if blocks and see other ways of formatting it that follow some of these practices. It's amazing how satisfying it can be. And at the end of, I think, yeah, the chapter in nested code, you've kind of got this example that you go through, like these, a few different iterations of, of refactoring it. And by the end of it, it's, yeah, it's one of the most satisfying uh, code samples and refactorings in the book. Oh, good. That's nice. I did try to close every chapter with a closing example where we refactored um, some kind of block of code to apply the practices uh, within that chapter. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, that this one was, was helpful. I tried to put them in every chapter. I think only one chapter didn't have a closing example. And it, it made sense at the time, but I'm, I'm still kind of waiting for that real world code where I'm like, ooh, here's, here's that closing example. And I'm going to go back and add it. Yeah, fair enough. Well, uh, anything else or should we wrap this one up? No, I think that's it. I mean, yeah, just like I said, have a look at some examples of how you can really get that code up to one level of indentation where possible. Cool. Yeah. So what have we got next? So next we have using objects. That's a good one. Uh, it fights primitive obsession, which is one of the original code smells outlined by Martin Fowler in his refactoring. Yeah, looking forward to using objects and I will see you next time. Cool. All right. See you later. See ya. Show notes for this episode can be found at basecodefieldguide.com slash three.